When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is going to be an episode about why I have a man crush on Ulysses S. Grant, the general-in-chief of all Union armies in the 1860s and the President of the United States from 1869 to 1877. Born in 1822 and died in 1885, Grant was one of our greatest United States generals and one of our better United States presidents. This is going to be a podcast about why I, Rockney Cole, have a man crush on U.S. Grant, but it's also going to be an exploration of his leadership skills. So we'll discuss, one, why I have this man crush on U.S. Grant, what it says about me and what it says about U.S. Grant, but we'll also, more importantly, discuss U.S. Grant's incredible leadership qualities, four of them that stand out for me that we'll discuss in detail. His pertinacity of purpose, the fact that Grant never gave gave up. Number two, that Grant was like the MacGyver of his own circumstances. He could be stuck anywhere, and he used the resources that he had to defeat the enemy and save the day. Number three, his humility. He was not a man of ostentation, but he was a simple, plain-spoken man who saved the Union from slavery and liberated countless people throughout the United States and brought our country together through his incredible military and political leadership. And finally, his simplicity. He was not a complicated man. He was simple in his prose, his military tactics, and his philosophy of life. Quite simply, U.S. Grant was one of our greatest generals and one of our better United States presidents, and you're going to learn why after listening to this podcast. And at the end of this podcast, I'm going to give you three biographies that you should read. American Ulysses by Ron White, Grant by Ron Chernow, and Grant by Gene Edward Smith. And a bonus pick. You're going to have to wait until the end of the podcast before you learn which one is best. So it's going to be a little bit like HGTV House Hunters, where you got to wait till the end to see which house they picked. Well, you're going to have to wait and see which one I pick. And you're also going to have to wait till the end of this really good alternative biography that you can read and a good YouTube video. So stay tuned for this exploration of why I have a man crush on U.S. Grant. And more importantly, what were the incredible leadership skills that he demonstrated that you can learn from and apply in your own life? So let's get started. Before we talk about his essential leadership qualities... Let's talk about why this is such an amazing story. And as a middle-aged man, you know, you've heard me talk a lot about that in some of my casts on Moby Dick and another cast that I've done. But I think this strikes a special chord with me being someone who is 45 years old in the middle stage of my own life, is that when Grant had reached middle age, he was an utter and complete failure in almost every aspect of his life. He was only 39 years old when the Civil War started in 1861. 
And at that time, he had had very few successes. He had had a few bright moments that did give us a glimpse that maybe this was no ordinary man. He did graduate from West Point Military Academy. He served with distinction in the Mexican-American War um, in the late 1840s. He was also an incredible horseman and held records in horse jumping at the military academy that existed for decades after he was there. So he did have some successes, but in terms of his business activities, he was a failure. In the 1850s, he was a failed farmer. It turns out, although he was a very effective general, he was totally incompetent a businessman. He was tough as nails in battle, but he couldn't collect rent payments. He failed at nearly everything that he did. He served with some distinction in the military, but even in the military, um, when he was posted out to the American West Coast in the 1850s, he basically resigned under suspicion that he had um, failed in his duty because of his alcohol problem. He was a drunk. And in fact, at one point, he fell so low that he was selling wood on a street corner in St. Louis just to make ends meet, just a few years before the Civil War started. He was so desperate that he had to suck it up and go work for his father, Jesse Grant, who was one of those fathers that just bird-dogged him all the time. He couldn't stand him. And to make matters worse, he had to go work with his little brother's in Galena, Illinois in 1860 in the tannery business that they had had and just basically to survive. So he had to do it and he had to take a loan to his father. But what makes this story so incredible is this man who was incompetent in almost every domain of his life, who no one thought would have done anything with it at the age of 39, became one of the most spectacular generals in United States history. And I can guarantee you, if you survey American generals, they will all say that he is right up there with Dwight D. Eisenhower, Douglas MacArthur, Norman Schwarzkopf. He is one of the best generals who ever lived. If you can imagine this total failure who was selling wood entered the Union Army in 1861. Within his first year of service, He had had multiple victories that were absolutely essential to the Civil War. He won at Fort Donelson, one of the keys to securing Western Tennessee for the United States. He had, in two years, he secured one of the most important victories of the Civil War in Vicksburg and allowed uninterrupted commerce throughout the Mississippi River. Lincoln referred to Vicksburg as securing the key to the his own pocket and that that was the essential part of securing the Western theater in the Civil War. And by the end of the Civil War, he was the general of all Union forces, subject only to the authority of Abe Lincoln. So this Woods, and he became a lieutenant general, a designation that had not existed since George Washington that was passed by Congress to give him total authority over all Union forces. And within seven years, he was president of the United States. How did this happen? How did this transformation occur? It did not happen by sheer luck. And no, friends, it did not 
It did not occur because he commanded the Union Army. Uh, the view that the Union Army was victory was inevitable over the American South simply is not true. He did it through some incredible, timeless leadership qualities and personal traits that allowed him to go from a wood salesman to one of the leading figures of the 19th century in the United States. And so we're going to explore how he did that. So let's talk about one of those essential leadership characteristics that Grant had. Lincoln called it a pertinacity of will. He never gave up. As a warrior, as a civilian, as a politician, he never moved left or right, and he certainly never moved backward. He had one direction and one point of view, and that is we move forward no matter what the odds are as a soldier, a politician, or a civilian. He was incredible. He had a will of steel. Before I tell you this incredible story of perseverance, I want you to go through your own thought experiment in your life. Imagine you are a successful 60-something. You've just reached your golden years. You have health, more money than you could ever imagine. You have worldwide fame, and you are widely celebrated throughout the United States. You are an American hero. One day while having breakfast, you get a phone call. That person tells you that you have been swindled out of your life savings. You thought you were a millionaire, and instead you do not have a penny to your name. But it gets worse. Not only do you not have any money, but you have to sell all of your assets, everything you own to satisfy debts that you didn't even think you owed. And after a little while, you feel a little lump in your throat, and you determine that you have been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And the doctor tells you, you have left less than a year to live. What would you do? Would you cry? Would you feel sorry for yourself? What do most people do in this situation? It's overwhelming. It's totally unfair. You're a victim. Well, this is a situation, nearly exact situation, that Grant finds himself in May of 1884. He'd gone through incredible ups and downs throughout his entire life. He had been in the military. He had had victories. He had had defeats. He'd served as the United States president. He'd done this around-the-world tour. And during that time, he became moderately wealthy. He had a lot of wealthy friends. And in the early 1880s, um, his son, Buck Grant, had invited him to invest in a partnership with a man named Ferdinand Ward, who promised incredible returns. He was viewed as the whiz kid of New York. But it turns out that Ferdinand Ward was no whiz kid. He was a criminal. He was the Bernie Madoff of his day. Grant had invested nearly $100,000 in a partnership of Ward and Grant, which is nearly $2.5 million today. The returns were incredible, like any Ponzi scheme. That's how you get people hooked. 15% per month. But eventually, of course, as all Ponzi schemes do, there was a call, and 
all of the money essentially was backed by nothing. It was just basically paper. So once it unraveled, it totally bankrupted Grant. He was totally humiliated. He became a pauper overnight. He did have some friends from wealthy allies like Cornelius Vanderbilt, but for the most part, it was just to help him to pay off the debts. Because especially for those 19th century partnerships, you had skin in the game. If you committed to be a partner, they didn't have this limited liability as much. You were in on, on the hook for every debt incurred by the partnership. And that's what happened to Grant. He had to sell everything to satisfy his obligations in this uh, Grant and Ward partnership. But it gets even worse. Nearly two months after having been uh, received this news that he had been bankrupted by a criminal, he was having a peach one day and he felt this pain in his throat and he was diagnosed with terminal throat cancer. So what did Grant do? Did he cry? Did he jump off a bridge? No. His first thought was for his wife and for his family, Julia. What would he do? He wanted to leave them financial legacy. And what one asset did he still have? He still had a lucid writing style. He still had this incredible story to tell, which Grant had refused in the past because he viewed memoirs as self-serving. He was a very humble person, but he knew he had no choice. And Mark Twain encouraged him to publish this. So Mark Twain was the actual publisher of the memoirs that Grant did. So with nearly a year left to live, Grant spent each of his last dying days in incredible pain writing one of the best presidential memoirs in American history. He wrote it in a very clear style. If you ever get the chance to read it, it was incredible. And it was not ghostwritten. He wrote it. One of the characteristics of Grant, as we'll talk about later, is he was an incredibly lucid writer. And you will love this. I'm about three quarters of the way through it. It's really one of the best books I've ever read. Grant is awesome. And in that last dying days, he, he left this memoir. And what was the payoff for Julia and the family? She received royalty checks totaling nearly $450,000, or nearly $12 million in today's money. Grant never gave up. But of course, this was not just the only act of heroism in his life. He acted this way throughout his life. He felt that no matter what the odds were, you're going to lose if you give up. You only have a chance if you keep moving forward. You know, most high school graduation speeches, you sort of forget most of them, quite frankly. But I remember when I was a senior at Decorah High School, I listened to a graduation speech by a famous soap opera star that grew up in Decorah, Gloria Johnson. And she said one thing that I will never forget. Success is when you fall down, you get up one more time. And that's the way Grant was. You always get up one more time and you never get, you never give up. If you get your butt kicked today, you get up and you keep moving. And this is demonstrated very early in the Civil War at a little church called Shiloh in western Tennessee, one of the first and most bloodiest battles of the Civil War. 
In early 1862, the Union was of the view that they could potentially defeat the Confederacy in that year. They did not think that they would take an additional three, diff- three additional years to defeat the Confederacy. They were riding high. They had just secured most of Tennessee through victories at Fort Donelson on the Cumberland River and Fort Henry on the Tennessee River. Those are stories unto themselves. And of course, who secured the victory? Ulysses S. Grant. And the next stop, they were going to proceed south and try to secure northern Mississippi near Corinth. They set up at a, at a camp near Pittsburgh Landing on the Tennessee River. And while they were there, they were planning for essentially this invasion of northern Mississippi. But they were surprised because in, in one of the first major battles of the Civil War, the Confederate Army, led by Albert Sidney Johnson and P.T. Beauregard, attacked first by surprise. The Confederates literally caught the Union with their pants down. They attacked while they were eating breakfast. And on that first day of the battle, the Union was absolutely crushed. They were nearly driven back into Pittsburgh Landing. And one of Grant's colleagues, John Carlos Buell, scanned Pittsburgh Landing, and what he saw just appalled him. There was chaos, there was confusion. He had seen death and destruction beyond what anyone had ever imagined. And Buell asked Grant, well, Grant, are we going to retreat? And Grant, in his own laconic way, said, I haven't despaired of whipping them yet, but it gets even better. Later that night, it was raining and late in the evening, and Grant was just sitting in his tattered Union soldier's clothes, smoking a cigar quietly by himself, the raindrops are pounding on his, on his hat. And his good friend, William Tecumseh Sherman, approached Grant and said, Well, Grant, we've had the devil's own day, haven't we? And Grant's response was, Yep, lick him tomorrow, though. And that's exactly what he did. That next day, the Union fought back and they attacked. They did not give up. And they forced the Confederates to retreat. And had they lost... That could have significantly impacted the outcome of the Civil War. And so that's the first leadership quality of Ulysses S. Grant, is that you never give up. Lincoln called it the pertinacity of the will. And that was this incredible quality that Ulysses S. Grant had. So the next quality we're going to talk about is use what you have. Be the MacGyver of your own destiny. So what do I mean by that? Grant was the like MacGyver. Grant used the resources that he had and he did it through forward moving action. He rarely if ever complained about the resources that he did not have. And you remember that 80s show MacGyver? MacGyver was this action hero, and it was an ABC show that was on for about five years. And he was a physicist. And MacGyver was incredible because he could be chasing the bad guys and then get trapped in some sort of warehouse. And would would MacGyver panic? No, he didn't. He would look at the resources that he had, and then he would take, like, a stick of gum, tinfoil. He would see a little 
spare can of gasoline that always just happened to be there. And within five minutes, he would make this bomb and then he would escape. And he did it through his wits, his knowledge and his courage and his tranquility under fire. This is Grant. Now, Grant wasn't building bombs, but Grant had this laser focus on always moving forward and looking at any asset and focus on how he could use that asset rather than lamenting what he had not been given. And up until this point in the war, especially when he became general in in chief in 1864, so many of the Union generals were always complaining about lack of men, lack of material, woe is me. They were complainers. They were not doers. And that was exemplified by George McClellan. You could not find two different people than George McClellan, who was the initial uh, primary general in the Union during the Civil War for the Union, and Grant. For General McClellan, he was a splendid guy, good-looking, talented, one of the best students at West Point, and he led some of the early campaigns in the Virginia theater in the early part of the Civil War. Except McClellan always had this characteristics that he was always blaming, always making excuses, never getting things done. Not Grant. And that is why Abraham Lincoln loved Grant. He was a doer. He moved. When he appointed him to be the general of all generals, general-in-chief in 1864, he was back in Washington. And Gene Edward Smith highlights this in his biography. This is a quote from that biography. Lincoln is talking with his third secretary, William O. Stoddard, and they were just sort of shooting the breeze about what made Grant so spectacular because many people couldn't see it. If you were to see Grant, and this is what many people observed, he sort of looked like a schlub. He he never wore his fancy uniforms. He didn't have a sword. You could barely even tell he was a general. So Lincoln and Stoddard are talking in his private office, and Lincoln said, you know, Stoddard, he said, Grant is the first general I've had. He's a general. Standard said, Standard said, what do you mean by that? Lincoln replied, he said, I'll tell you what I mean. You know how it's been with all the rest? As soon as I put a man in command of the army, he'd come to me with a plan of campaign and about as much as say, I don't believe I can do it. But if you say so, I'll try. And so put the responsibility of success or failure on me. They all wanted me to be the general. It isn't so with Grant. He hasn't told me what his plans are. I don't know and I don't want to know. I'm glad to find a man who can go ahead without me. But he also loved that Grant always focused on the resources that he had. He never complained about what he didn't have. So Lincoln continued telling Stoddard, he said, you know, all the previous commanders would pick something out that they were short of, and they knew they couldn't, that I couldn't give them. And they'd tell me that, well, they couldn't win unless they had it, and it was General Cavalry. So when Grant took power as a general of all generals, He took up position near Harper's Ferry. Lincoln knew that he had 15,000 men, but they didn't have the horses to mount those men for the cavalry. So in other words, a cavalry without horses. 
And so Lincoln was so accustomed to people making excuses, he would inquire to Grant. He said, you know, I understand we have all these cavalrymen, but we don't have horses, so what are you going to do about that? And Grant didn't even skip a beat. He said, you know what? Why don't we just disband the cavalry and turn them into infantry? Didn't miss a beat. They may not be cavalry, but we can use them and make them into infantry. Use the resources that we have rather than complain about the things that you don't. And most importantly, this is one of my favorite phrases from the book and by Gene Edward Smith, Biography of Grant. Grant moved. He had action in his heart. And so one of the things that Lincoln said, he said, the only evidence that you have that he's been in any place is that he makes things get. Whenever he's there, things move. And I think that really exemplifies Grant. You know, one of my favorite writers is Malcolm Gladwell. And one of my favorite articles that he has written is on capitalization. Capitalization is the concept of with the assets that you have, what percentage of those assets are you actually utilizing? He brings it up in the context of education. For education, a lot of times we're focusing on student achievement and and what their test scores are, but is that really the goal of education, moving up test scores? Well, of course we want moved up test scores. But isn't isn't it a more narrow question, which is, With the student's natural endowment, with the natural talent that they've been given, we want to assist them to maximize their performance given their natural endowment. Whether it's in athletics, whether it's in music, whether it's in art, whether it's in reading, whether it's in math, whether it's in science. And isn't that also a good framework in life and a leadership lesson? So often we focus on our deficits. We rarely catalog... One, what our, what our assets are. And two, of the assets that we currently have, are we maximizing them to the fullest? And that's what Grant was all about. He was all about utilizing the resources that he had and not complaining about the resources that he did not have. And this is also perfectly illustrated by Grant himself and a quote from Grant, a little vignette, in 1864. When he took command of the Union armies, he had had overcome incredible obstacles and gone against some incredibly talented generals, but he hadn't gone against Robert E. Lee. Robert A. Lee was one of the best tactical generals in the Civil War, and Lee had not gone against Ulysses S. Grant. And to some degree, the Union generals were so awed by General Lee, they were constantly worried about, well, what's, what's, what's Lee going to do? So when Grant took command, his objective was the destruction of Lee's army, and Lee was defending Richmond. So that meant that from Washington, Grant had to move down through incredible obstacles to attack the army that was defending Washington. And as they crossed the rivers and the woods, there was one point in the war where one of the generals came up to General Grant, and he was reporting on all the different things that General Lee was going to do. And he said, General Grant, he said, this is a crisis that cannot be looked upon too seriously. I know Lee's methods by past experience. He will throw his whole army between us and the Rapidian, which is a river. 
and cut us off completely from our communications. And Grant got up. I was about as mad as he could get because he's usually pretty cool. He imagined he's chomping on a cigar and he let it fly and he said, I'm so heartily tired of hearing about what Lee is going to do. Some of you always think that he is suddenly going to turn a double somersault, land in our rear, and on both flanks at the same time. Go back to your command general and try to think about what we are going to do ourselves instead of what Lee is going to do with us. And that is just encapsulates the genius of General Grant. So the next time you're worried about resources you don't have or the talents you don't have, ask yourself, are you maximizing to your fullest, just like General Grant would, every talent and asset that you currently do have? And if you do, stop your complaining and start moving, right? Move, move, move. And as Lincoln said, that Grant, he's the littlest, quietest little fella you ever done seen. But whenever he's in a place, the only evidence you have he's been there is that things really get and things really move. Move, move, move. That's the essence of Ulysses S. Grant. The other reason I love U.S. Grant is that he was so humble. Certain generals throughout United States history are total prima donnas. They're all about themselves, like Douglas MacArthur during World War II, George Patton comes to mind, We've got General Pershing during World War I, and of course more recently in the Gulf War, Norman Schwarzkopf. These are sort of generals that, in my view, sort of sought to elevate themselves and make sure that they were the ones getting all of the glory. Not U.S. Grant. He was all about sharing credit and accepting blame were called for, and he only let his actions do the speaking for him. He was never a show-off and never talked to elevate himself at the expense of others. And I thought it'd be helpful in this particular segment to compare and contrast U.S. Grant with Joe George McClellan. George McClellan was one of the first commanding generals of the Army of the Potomac in the early part of the Civil War in 1861. And McClellan was absolute central casting to be a rock star general. He was born in 1826 to an elite Philadelphia family, and everything about his life demonstrated that he would be a hero and that it would be he who would bring the United States to victory, not a doughty loser like U.S. Grant. He was the polar opposite. Grant was a mediocre, mediocre student at West Point. McClellan was number two, could have been number one, but for his skills in military drawing. He served with distinction during the Mexican-American well, as did Ulysses Grant, um, but he was more at the side of the leading generals. Um, in the 1850s, he traveled the world and observed various military tactics by the British in the Crimea. He led dashing and daring expeditions in the Wild West, and gained military experience out in the Wild West. And he also prepared military U.S. tactical manuals on bayonets, as well as on cavalry. So he was literally writing the book on how military should operate. He's considered a very innovative thinker. He also had executive uh, private sector experience. He was executive with the Illinois Central as well as the, as well as the, Iowa and Miss, the Ohio and Mississippi Railroad. So he was everything that you would expect in a, in a rock star general. He had a huge ego, extremely handsome, dashing. He was experienced. And while Grant was selling wood on a St. Louis street corner, 
In 1850, late 1850s, McClellan was making upwards of $10,000 a year as a railroad executive, a princely sum in those days. So you'd have thought that McClellan would have been the rock star, that he would have been the one that would be successful, and Grant would have been the failure. And McClellan, in practical fact, was not a very successful general. At best, he was a mediocre general. At worst, he was horribly incompetent. Unlike Grant, he blamed others when the stuff hit the fan. He was always complaining that he had not enough resources, that he was not able to um, secure victory because of all of the limitations that he had. He was always begging Lincoln for more troops, constantly b- blaming Lincoln if there was any ever any problems. He constantly overestimated the strength of the enemy, and he was so incredibly cautious. He lived his life fearing failure, and here I think the larger lesson is, is that for some really successful people that come from successful families, their fear of failure is so great that they become mediocre because if you never fail, you're never going to do great things. And you do great things when you take some risks. And everything he saw, he saw it as totally complicated In every single corner, he looked at how defeat could occur. And then if defeat did occur, he would shift blame for others. In short, he was the total opposite of U.S. Grant. And here I thought I would share just this amazing vignette of U.S. Grant to demonstrate his humility in the early part of um, the spring of 1864. So in the early part of 1864, Grant's actions had made him the man in the United States military infrastructure. By that time, everyone knew that Grant was a word of man of action, not words. He got stuff done. As Lincoln said, he liked to make things get. And so Grant is appointed to be the lieutenant general of all Union armies throughout the United States, a designation that had literally not been seen since George Washington. So this is a huge deal. So he is invited to Washington to accept this appointment, to confer with uh, Abraham Lincoln. And of course, to receive him, they set him up at this swanky hotel. And so Grant arrives. And so here is what happened. And, it's, and I'll, I'll read the section from Gene Edwards Smith's biography on what happens when Grant arrives to Washington in the spring of 1864 to accept this incredible appointment. And Smith writes, Grant arrived in Washington with typical understatement. The White House had designated a welcoming committee to meet the train and escort him to to his hotel. But the arrangements fell through and no one was on hand when he arrived the afternoon of March 8th, accompanied by his 13-year-old son, Fred. Inconspicuous and unrecognized, a travel-stained linen duster hiding most of his uniform, he made his way to the Willard Hotel two blocks down from Pennsylvania Avenue from the White House. Grant had stayed at the Old Willard 12 years earlier when he had sought to clear the Army's books of a missing $1,000 in a quartermaster funds. A board desk clerk, accustomed to dealing with the Capitol's most distinguished guests, looked at him and saw no one in particular, and allowed us how there might be a small room on the top floor, if that would do, and asked him if, what would this small floor do? And Grant said that would be just fine, um, and signed the register. The clerk twirled and looked at the book to write the room number after the name, and he saw U.S. Grant and Stun, Galena, Illinois. Suddenly everything changed, and they got him the best hotel in the room. 
But this to me, this demonstrates you as Grant. This is why I have a man crush. I love people that are humble, that don't expect special privileges. I mean, this is a quintessential American leadership. Grant has every reason to expect a luxury room at this hotel and to be treated with great fanfare. He is the most successful general in the Civil War. And yet he expects no special privileges, no special treatment, and he accepts the room that is given to him. This is the essence of leadership. And I think if we look at the way in which his peers described him, there's, a, there's an incredible description that is done by a guy named Adam Bodeau, a former newsman who had become Grant's military secretary. And here's how he describes U.S. Grant. He says, not a sign about him suggested rank or reputation or power. He discussed the most ordinary themes with apparent interest and turned from them in the same quiet tones and without a shade of difference in his manner to decisions that involve the fate of armies, as if great things and small were to him of equal moment. In battle, the sphinx awoke. awoke. The outward calm was even then not entirely broken, but the utterance was prompt, the ideas were rapid, the judgment was decisive, the words were those of command, and the whole man became intense, as it were, with a white heat. I mean, are you kidding me? Wouldn't you love to be described as someone who acts with white heat? Oh, wow, that's, that's a great way to do it. But what makes this even more powerful is this relationship and this connection of humility that he has with Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was a total tough guy. I mean, this is the guy taking on the evil slave power. This is the guy that's leading all the Union forces. This is the guy that's providing incredible inspirational leadership to a, to a nation in crisis. But he matches Grant's humility, and he also recognizes Grant's action. But what I love about Lincoln is that he was so frustrated with the early generals of the Civil War, but once he found Grant, he trusted him. He deferred to his expertise. He didn't try to micromanage him. So in 1864, um, Grant thought he would check in on him and see how Grant was doing I'm along a little spot along the James River in Virginia. So we stopped down, and after shaking hands around, he went over to Grant, and he told him, he said, You know, Grant, I thought I would just jump on board a boat and come down to see you. I don't expect I can do any good. And in fact, I may do more harm than good. But I'll put myself under your orders, and if you find me do anything wrong, just send me right away. Now, again, I mean, this is the president of the United States basically telling Grant, like, hey, man, if I'm screwing stuff up, just, just let me know, and I'll, and I'll leave. He had total trust, and he knew that he was someone who um, needed that leadership, and he was willing to show as a sign of respect, humility towards Grant. So I think humility a lot of times is viewed as a weakness. But I think the truly great leaders do show that humility. And certainly, he certainly did that as well. And this is what made this dynamic partnership so incredibly important to the success of the Civil War. Are both men's humility. I think another uh, incredible little vignette in, this, in the Civil War was in, in Vicksburg in 1863. Once Grant had secured, through great peril the um, port of Vicksburg and basically allowed commerce to run unobstructed on the Mississippi River. 
And Lincoln totally disagreed with all of the risky choices Grant had made. But after he was successful, he wrote him a letter and he acknowledged his own error. And he said this, he said, my dear general, I do not remember that you and I have ever met personally. I write this now as grateful acknowledgement for the most inestimable service you have done this great country. I wish to say a word of further. When you first reached the vicinity of Vicksburgs, I thought you should do what you finally did. March the troops across the neck, run the batteries with the transports, and thus go below. And I never had any faith except in the general hope that you knew better than I that the Yazoo Pass expedition and the like could succeed. When you got below and you took Port Gibson, Grand Gulf, and the vicinity, I thought you should go down the river and join Banks, General Banks, that is. And when you turned northward east of the Big Black, I feared it was a mistake. I now wish to make the personal acknowledgement that you were right and I was wrong. Yours very truly, Abe Lincoln. So imagine our present leader ever admitting that he was wrong to be able to admit that you're wrong on a topic, I think this is an incredibly important leadership skills. And to, and to share credit and to praise others over yourself. And Lincoln does not view it as a sign of weakness, but it is Lincoln's strength that he can admit that he was wrong. And the final little quote that I love is, is at some point, speaking of prima donnas, one of the total prima donnas of the Lincoln cabinet was Edward Stanton, the Secretary of War during the Civil War. Stanton was sort of an asshole. I mean, he, was, he didn't treat Lincoln very well during uh, litigation in the 1850s. He was incredibly arrogant. He was very competent, but he was a classic prima donna. And in 1864, when, when uh, Grant was in Virginia, Stanton didn't think he was really doing a good job. And so Stanton basically started trying to boss Grant around, and Grant fought back and said, hey, you got to ask for Lincoln to that because he's the, he's the ranking person here. He's the president of the United States. And Lincoln very deftly responded good-naturedly to Stanton. He said, quote, you and I, Mr. Stanton, you have been trying to boss this job, and we have not succeeded very well at it. We have sent across the mountains for Mr. Grant, and as Mr. Grant calls him to relieve us, I think we had better leave him alone to do as he pleases. So, you know, just this, you know, it's easy to state in life where people can never admit that they're wrong. They can't assess the limits of their own expertise, but Lincoln clearly could do that and sort of Grant could do as well. He knew what he did well and he did it with great pertinacity as purpose, as Lincoln said. So this is my, one, one of the many reasons um, why we, I love and have a man crush on U.S. Grant. And you can see all the lessons we can learn from Grant. And the final thing that we can really learn from, from Grant is his simplicity. He was simple in his dress. He was simplicity, simple in his military tactics. And he was simple in his writing. One of the things that really jumps off the page with the Gene Edward Smith biography is that he includes a quote, you know, because the view of Grant up until about 25, 30 years ago, was that he was basically like any idiot could have won. It's sort of like the people that claim, you know, any idiot could have, you know, won with Michael Jordan as a player. I mean, so they sort of underestimate Phil Jackson. Well, that's what basically Grant has had to deal with for the last 100 years. Like, well, any idiot could have, been the, could have beat the South. I mean, there was these huge advantages. And no, Gene Edward Smith was really one of the first to basically say no. I mean, there was actually some skills, and one of them is the clarity of his prose. If you ever want to teach your child how to learn how to write, have him or her read the biography of Ulysses S. Grant. His writing was so crystal clear. 
Some people described it as sparkling with clarity. There's a famous point um, when he becomes general in in chief that he's writing General Meade, the the great Civil War victor in in the Battle of Gettysburg, who is now under Grant's command in the Virginia campaign. And here were the instructions that he gave George Meade. He said, quote, Lee's army will be your objective point. He, will, he told Meade, wherever Lee goes, you will go there also. Everything he did was simple and clear. And this happened throughout the Civil War. Um, at Shiloh, there was a point where there was this, this really tough moment. They were asking what Grant should do, like, or, or what the soldiers should do. And Grant said, and I quote, move out of the way, pointing in the southwest direction. And then he said, as to this other tactic, he said, I will leave that to your discretion. And then Grant says, with those few words, the attack on the Union right began. Grant never burdened his commanders with excessive detail. He didn't do huge, complicated meetings, no detailed orders. He was only simple about the things that actually mattered. The other stuff, he left to their subordinate commanders free to do what they wanted to do. So he was clear where he needed to be. And then he gave discretion where it made sense to give them discretion. And so the simplicity was in his prose, in his dress, and also in his military tactics. Where he once was quoted with war, as he said, you know what, it's really not that complicated. He said, the art of war is simple enough. Find out where your enemy is, get him as soon as you can, strike him hard as you can, and keep on moving. And that's classic U.S. Grant distilled to his essence. So there we have it. Grant is a man who's simple, he's humble, he's based upon action, he uses what he got, and he doesn't worry about what he doesn't. And most importantly, he never gives up. So now I hope you've been able to understand why I have this major, major man crush on U.S. Grant. I just think you can learn a lot from him. And now I'm going to do my House Hunter reveal of which biography that you should read. Now, all of these are good biographies. Ron White is an incredible biographer. And then we have Ron Chernow. Um, he is a wonderful biographer. And then Grant by Gene Edward Smith. They're all incredible. You can't go wrong. But now we'll do the reveal. Which is the one that you should actually take the time to read? By far, it's Gene Edward Smith's Grant biography. If if you if you get a pull a book, it is so good. It sparkles with detail, and it covers the whole period of his life, not only the Civil War but it also includes Reconstruction. Grant did some incredible things during the um, Civil War period, but also as well as Reconstruction in terms of civil rights for freed slaves. He did have some problems during his presidency that I think there's a fair critique of him. He also gets into Grant's post-presidency life. You will love this book. So you got to read Grant, Gene Edward Smith. But I also want, promised I would give you a bonus pick. So you're also going to get a bonus pick. You can't really go wrong with U.S. Grant, The Man Who Saved the Union by H.W. Brands. H.W. Brands is probably the most entertaining speaker of all these biographers. Um, He's a UT Austin professor of history. Super entertaining. And if you're not a reader, that's okay. Um, I encourage you to read and to listen to um, YouTube. You can see a lot of lectures by H.W. Grant. And he does a really good lecture on U.S. Grant. So it's H.W. Brands. So I encourage you to check that book out as well. And I share his conviction that without... U.S. Grant, I really mean this, we could have easily lost that war. We were incredibly close. 
So give thanks and learn from lead, from U.S. Grant. And I hope you have enjoyed this podcast as much as I have. So until next time, we will see you once again on the Rockneycast. Cast.